0: problems through baptism and we've looked at, at just as Christ was
1: raised from the dead God the glory spoke of the Father, even the heavens, so we also should all that fill them. a new life, including the pinnacle and of so his creation, baptized mankind, mankind. What we're doing is we're reenacting. and we looked at we, that we we last like week in detail, in the valley, right? but if uh, uh, we're, we're going to reenact me, death Genesis chapter two, and burial and resurrection, we actually had in verse 25 what God said about his creation. And as of the life of Jesus that's life. proven to be in them. Genesis and chapter so two, we do verse that?:: 25, gonna, uh, where it says Lucy this. wants to say something. Imagine that Adam somebody in my family were both naked
0: so And the Lucy man and his wife
1: and they were not these girls ashamed. are brave because they, they were naked. A step of faith in front of everybody. Unashamed. But they're they also were brave because this vulnerable frigid. to one another and yet they were in fellowship with one another in a way that was not uncomfortable. They were there they were And so Um, as they were naked and um, unashamed, the other thing that I want to point out is at the end of chapter 1 in verse 31, when God had finished creating, in chapter 1 we saw the the macro level or the high level view of God's creation, and he didn't go into massive amounts of detail, but at the end of chapter 1 he says this, Lucy Mingi, it says that God saw everything that he had made and indeed... the Holy Spirit. It was very good. And this is the first time every other day he says, and, and God saw it, that he had made it, and it was good. And yet when it's complete, when it's whole, when it's finished, it says God looked at it, and indeed it was very good. (laughs) <laughs> so then, evening and the morning were the sixth day. But then, I, chapter I have two brings in here. a little bit not more. Because he shows more I mean, detail heavy, about what he created. But I wanted to. And at the um, end of chapter two, it says there that, that um, when he had created Adam, godly and then out of the side it takes of Adam, church, he formed and it takes Eve other people out of the same material together, that he was made out of. As a, as it as says they were both naked. They were both in fellowship with one another, the man and his wife, and they were unashamed. Peyton. So this is where mm-hmm. we find we ourselves as we go into Father, chapter 3 today. of the sun, perfect and the Holy world, spirit, ideal conditions, unbroken fellowship between God and you okay. Man. Go grab no your hiding. Towel. Make sure no Lucy's shame. got one too. No guilt, no fear. Imagine if we had no fear well, today. Well, that's it for today's uh, service. We've God bless you guys. Have a great this week. Downward spiral of fear to where at this point people are more afraid of something they can't see than of the God that they can't see. And so here we find ourselves in broken fellowship. But before that happened, there was unbroken fellowship. And as a matter of fact, man related to God by God speaking and us hearing what he had to say, almost like a conversation. There was the speaking of the word. Uh, Romans chapter 10 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. And here we have it, they had that without an intermediary. They had that without the Bible. They, they, spoke to, they heard God, they spoke to God, he heard them, etc. Unbroken fellowship with God was in the beginning. Open access, it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, to two trees that were in the midst of the garden, the tree of life, and they were told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the only command, by the way. Oftentimes we think if we just had enough rules, then we would be okay. And that's what we do. We create more and more and more laws. But what Paul writes in Romans is that when law increased, when there was more rules, there was actually more broken rules. And you know that. The more rules we make about whether, how, you know, how to drive or what we can wear and not wear and do inside of stores and how close we can be to each other, It actually means that more people are breaking rules. It doesn't mean that there's more perfect perfection. And so um, they had open access, but they had one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But then notice also in chapter 2, verse 25 that I just read, they had unbroken fellowship with each other. So what's the greatest commandment Jesus taught? He said, you shall love the Lord your God supremely, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, that's what was going on before the fall. Before Genesis chapter 3, they loved God supremely, and they loved their neighbor. Now, they only had one neighbor, so you might say that's easier, but it was still his spouse, right? And so here we have unbroken fellowship because the word of God has yet to be disobeyed. Obedience leads to blessing every time, every time, every time. And yet in chapter 3, we have the tempter show up and start to question what God had said. And so Satan's going to run his only play to question God. Chapter 3, verse 1. So the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And this is, by the way, how you can identify... Whose voice is speaking to you? Is it God's voice or is it the voice of the enemy of God? God's voice will always confirm God's word, it will always agree with it. The voice of the enemy will always question Did God really mean this? Did he really say that? Is that really how it's supposed to be interpreted? Boy, that sounds kind of prudish. You know, all those things, God, God has already told. Adam and Eve, what is the perfect and right will of God? And what the enemy does is he comes in and says, are you sure? Are you really sure? That seems really hard. That seems against what everybody else says. Guess what? Most of the time, that's what it is. God doesn't follow everybody else's wind of doctrine. God doesn't follow everybody else's cultural norms. He makes the rules. And so the serpent twisted what God had said. And we go on to see this. He says, verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, which is true, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll, you'll have better sight, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, the serpent questioned what God had said. Did God really say? The serpent twisted what God had said, and then he even denied it and said, well, you're not going to die <coughs> physically. You're not going to die physically. See, he's implying what man would think about. I'm alive. And so I'm going to eat this fruit, and it's just going to kill me? Are you saying it's poisonous? They were naive. Well, was he talking about physical death, or was he talking about spiritual death? Spiritual death, by the way, is separation from God. It's to take all the light out of your life. And so the serp- then on top of that, the third one, the serpent questioned God's motives for keeping them from the tree. God's only keeping you from this because he knows that if he keeps you from it, you won't, you won't be able to subvert his authority. You won't have to submit to him anymore because you won't need him anymore. And he, you know how God is. He's got a, a weak ego. He really needs to be needed. But that's not what he was saying. See, the serpent questioned God's motives and basically says here, on the day, he knows that on the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him not so much that you'll be like him that's the goal of the christian life to become more like jesus but that instead you'll be your own ruler and instead of having to listen to the word of god and submit yourself to it you you can just go straight to the tree of knowledge and good you can know the right and wrong on your own apart from god the problem with that is that that's not what we were made for we were made to simply know god to know his word and to respond in obedience, and there's joy in that relationship. And so the serpent says, don't you know you can bypass all that relationship stuff, and you can do your own thing? Sounds great. What kid have you not heard say, I can't wait till I leave my parents' house, then I'll do what I want to do. And you know what? There is a time in your life where you do need to do that as a young individual. But the problem is, is that God's given us parents to honor until that day to obey them as unto the Lord, and in doing that, he says, if you'll honor your parents, you'll actually live a long life in the land. And so, but what I want to point out this morning in 1 John, in chapter 2, is Satan, the enemy of your soul and mine, has a playbook. It's his little black book. He's got three plays, by the way, and he runs the same ones every time. He's not a great player, but he's got the same three plays, and if you're not careful, you'll fall subject to them. They're traps. Satan's playbook can be found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, where the Apostle John writes this. He says to believers, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the idea is if you love the world more than you love God, then you're always going to choose the world over obeying God. And in that, you'll separate yourself from him. But verse 16, he says, for all that is in the world, all that you could love, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. And the world, by the way, is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God will live or abide with him forever. And so this playbook is three things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And we're going to find from this original temptation, that's that's exactly what Satan did. Look at the fruit. Look at it. It's good for food, It's able to make you wise. I mean, who doesn't want that? And then it's also able to make you like God to know. And so what I want to point out too is if you turn just a few books to the left, to James, if you get to Hebrews, you went a little too far. Get to James chapter 1 and verses 2 through 8, and then we'll look at verse 12 through 15. James, the half-brother of Jesus, compares temptation to trials. Temptation is something that the serpent brings. He actually says in James chapter 1, verse 2, My brethren, he says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that this will test your faith, and testing of your faith produces patience, which is a fruit of the Spirit. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him. So as as Eve is getting ready to be tested in her faith, she has two options. She can either believe the serpent, look at the fruit or she can ask God, what should I do? And that will produce in her more trust because as you trust God through circumstances that are above and beyond you, you find out that he is sufficient for everything you need, no matter how bad you're tempted. But then if you go a little bit further in verse 12 of James chapter 1, James writes, Blessed, or oh, how happy is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, tested and found approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Not to those who love the world or the things in the world, but he's promised the crown of life to those who love him supremely. Let no one say when he's tempted, by the way, I've been tempted by God. For God does not tempt anyone by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So the desire meets opportunity. King David prayed this. He said, Lord, I'm going to delight myself in you, and then you'll give me the desires of my heart. The idea wasn't that as I trust you, and as I delight myself in you, then you'll give me what I want. The idea was that If I'll delight myself in you, then your desires will become my desires, and then I will desire the things that you want for me and nothing else. And so in here he says, but when you have a desire that is against the Spirit, a desire that will break God's simplest of commands, and then when you're given the opportunity, it's like match and gasoline. And when match and gasoline come together, how many of us have lost eyebrows over that? What, what can it bring forth? Death. Maybe to some eyebrows and maybe to your face, maybe to your body if it's enough gasoline, right? So sin is just like that. Temptation will always be there, always. You cannot move to a different place and, well, if I just lived somewhere else, then I won't be tempted. That won't work because you'll still be there and opportunity will still be there. But if desire changes from my fleshly desire for the world and for sin, then what happens is if as my desire changes, opportunity won't even matter to you because you won't be carrying matches around anymore with the gasoline. It'll say warning on the door and you'll either uh, flee or you'll pray through it. Lord, please help me not to want this thing anymore. I know it's gonna bring forth death in my life. And so all that to say... God tests our faith. He allows testing, and the, the, the tempter will always come in, Satan, and he will give you opportunities to do the things he knows you want to do. And by the way, he knows what your Achilles heel is. He knows the thing that you look at when no one else is looking. He knows the desires you have. I don't know how. I can't explain it. But I do know that he watches to see what will trip you up, And then he'll lay that carrot right before you. And as soon as you bite on it, there's a hook in there. Sin has a hook. It is pleasurable for a season, by the way, sin. The Bible teaches that sin is pleasurable for a season, but it always leads to death. And we're going to look at that. But I praise the Lord that in this temptation we read about, that though Adam and Eve failed it, they took the bait, they, they got hooked, they became slaves to sin, that Jesus Christ, the second Adam, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, these three plays that Satan threw at Adam and Eve, guess what? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus being baptized, brought up, took by the Spirit into the wilderness, he was tempted with the same three things, and yet in every way being tempted, he never once took the bait. He said, "'Get behind me, Satan.'" You shall love the Lord your God with your all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall not bow down to any man, only to God. He didn't make bread out of a rock, even though he was starving. He'd been fasting for 40 days. He said, "I want what God I come to do, the will of my Father alone." And so all that to say, the temptation leads Eve to the second look. Now many of you have seen this image on, on the Facebooks or online. And it's always like this meme of something that, you know, somebody saw, and they're like looking at it instead of their spouse. But all that to say, it's, it's not being tempted by the way that's sin. And we're going to look at that in verse 6. I'll get back to the text. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. So in verse 6 through 7, it's not so much the tempting that was sin for Eve. It was that she succumbed to the temptation, and she looked again. I have there for you. It's the second glance that will get you. But notice that she didn't glance at the fruit a second time. She beheld it. To behold something means to look intently at it and to notice all of its attributes. So look at this. The fruit in the second look, the lust of the eyes, that it was pleasant to her eyes. It was beautiful. The lust of the flesh, it was good for food and the pride of life. It was desirable to make one wise. So what does it hurt to look? Now, not at a glance, a beholding. What does it hurt to look? Well, when you look at things, you notice them. And when you notice them, you start to want them. And so as you notice them and start to want them, here's what happens. You start to partake in them. Verse 8 through 9. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the lord god among the trees of the garden and then the lord god called to adam and said to him where are you and i was a af- and so he said i heard your voice in the garden and i was afraid because i was naked and i hid myself and he said who told you that you were naked have you eaten from the tree of which i commanded you that you should not eat And then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, it was the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so before we go to man's response, oftentimes we look at a passage and what we zoom in on is how man responded. And no doubt we could laugh at Adam a lot. We could laugh at Eve a lot. And we will here in a second, maybe. But what I want to point out is God's pursuit of Adam and Eve. Do you notice what wasn't said when God came, as he always did, walking in the cool of fellowship with them in this garden that he made for them to dwell in? What he didn't say was, what the heck are you doing? You idiots. He didn't say that. He said, where are you guys? He pursued them. He didn't have to, he could have said, I'm done, start over. He could have been like an artist that is not happy with the beginning of their sketch and crumble it up, throw it away and go, okay, let's start again. I didn't make it right. That's not what he did. What he did was he, he took this problem and he made it an opportunity for a deeper relationship. Some of the people that I am closest with as an individual person, are the people that I have walked through problems with. Some of the people that I have the closest fellowship with have failed me, and instead of being done with them and erasing them from my life, I've pursued a relationship with them despite the sin, despite the brokenness, despite the hurt that I've received. God pursued them again, and He said, where are you? Where did you go? Notice that it wasn't God that left, but it was actually Adam and Eve. They didn't leave, but by sinning, they separated themselves, and then when they noticed the consequences of their sin, they backed away. They hid themselves. They made a covering. They were the problem, and yet God pursued them, and then he continued his relationship with them. Problems and sin between you and other individuals problems and sin between you and god let's start there those are not things that are meant to condemn you from him he died for those things he wants to work through those things with you you have not gone so far that god can't love you and forgive you you have not gone so far that god can't forgive you and love you but you have to begin by responding to his call he's called for you to do what repent agree with him that what you did is sin it's not a mishap it's not a mistake it's not somebody else's fault it's not even his fault it's not god's fault right now we live in a culture where people say this i can't help doing this god made me this way no he didn't that's sin creating problems that's your sin that's your parents sin that's adam and Eve's sin all of that building up to guess what? You're all sinners. Guess what? We're all sinners. Let's go that way. And so God, knowing that we are full of sin, the only thing that we bring to the table in this relationship, we, we bring brokenness. And if you want to get down to the nitty gritty, uh, we've cheated on him sexually, if you want to call it that. That's how heinous it is to him. If you've ever experienced betrayal in a relationship that's made you feel disgusted with a person, that's what we bring to God's relationship with us. Nothing else, nothing better, nothing. Actually, negative amounts. We come to him bankrupt. We can't even pay our own bills. We can't pay for our sin debt. And yet what he does is he comes and he says, this is an opportunity for me to show you how much I love you. Romans chapter 5 says God demonstrated his love towards us while we were still sinning against him. He died for us then, not when we cleaned ourselves up and came to church. Not when we cleaned ourselves up and acted like everything was fine. I heard somebody say this this week and I love it. The Christian F-word. How you doing? Fine? Liar. You are not fine. Everything's not fine. Everything's hard everything's messed up. And, and it, it, even more as the day draws near for his return, it will be that way. But then I also want you to notice this. Despite Adam and Eve's sin and their rebellion, their rejection of his one command, God listened to them. That's how their relationship started. He pursued them and said, where are you? What have you done? Did you do the thing I told you not to? And then he listened to their response. He listened man's the one who changed, not God. So God did not push them away. What pushed them away from God? Their sin separated them from God. And our sin is always the problem. It's not him. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says that it's, it's Israel back in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2. I'm going to read there real quick from verse 1. Behold, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands have defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. So, God pursues you and he is pursuing you right now. He will continue to pursue you. What do you have to do? Respond. Talk to him. Confess your sin and let him forgive you of it. Admit that it's sin and ask for his changing grace. So we talked about that. Then verse 10, let's go ahead and look at what they responded with. Number one, they try to hide from God. They feared being exposed. John chapter uh, 3 actually says this I'm going to turn there because I'll misquote it John chapter 3 after the most famous passage everyone knows John 3:16 God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believeth in his name shall not perish but have everlasting life but then in verse 18 it says he who believes in him is not condemned But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed just like Adam and Eve. They didn't come to him, he came to them because they didn't want to be brought out into the light lest their deeds would be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And so back in Genesis chapter three, the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And Adam responded and said, I heard your voice in the garden. Notice he didn't say, I saw you, He said i heard you his face has been hidden from him and i was afraid because i was naked and i hid myself so in this interaction god notices there's a problem verse 11 who told you that you were naked have you eaten from the tree of which i commanded you that you should not eat and the man said yeah but the woman who you gave to be with me she made me do it you blame shifting right We make fun of our kids, but how many times do we blame our spouse or somebody else in our, well, I wouldn't have done that, but my boss said this, so I did it. Or I wasn't going to speed, but the person behind me was going fast, so I wasn't going to let them pass me, so I sped. Or they passed me, and I was mad, so I pursued them. Who knows what I was going to do? You know, you name it, we blame other people instead of accepting responsibility. And then Notice he also says, the woman that you gave me, the person that you brought into my life has caused me to be this way. Bull, you were that way, they just turned up the heat and it exposed who you really are. God's exposing you by bringing people that caused you to get squeezed. And when you get squeezed, what comes out is what's in there. Now, I don't like it any more than you do because it happens to me. But the reality is, when I get exposed, I got two options. I can blame somebody else, or I can repent. I can come to God and confess, God, this, what's, this is what's in my heart. Will you please change my heart, because I'm tired of seeing this nastiness coming out. So, we fear being exposed. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says that there's a, a sorrow over sin that leads to repentance. That's godly sorrow. And there's a sorrow over sin that leads to hiding, which is worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow and godly sorrow are two different things. One says I'm I'm sad because I got caught, and one says I'm sad because I've broken God's law. So rather than shirking responsibility, true repentance means to just own it. If anybody has ever exposed your sin and it's made you feel like ashamed and want to hide and want to deny it and act like it's not there you will remain in the prison cell that you put yourself in. But if your sin gets exposed and you lean into it and go, well, that's who I am, may as well tell the world, you get set free because the truth always will set you free, especially when you tell it to the Lord. And so all that to say, go on to verse 14. So, though their sins will ultimately be forgiven by God's redeeming work. Sin that is forgiven still has consequences. I might be forgiven of my speeding ticket. And of course, sometimes you've got to pay a fee, right? But then at that point, you still keep your license. But what happens is they put these little things called points on your license, and the next time you get pulled over, that gets held against you, right? And so that's a consequence of sin. Or say you don't get points, but your insurance goes up, you know, something like that. There are consequences to sin that though you get forgiveness, maybe you lie to your parents or you lie to your spouse or you lie to your boss. They might forgive you, but it will take a long time before they'll be willing to trust you again. That's a consequence of sin, though you've been forgiven for that sin. And so verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put war between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now under there I wrote in big bold letters, Jesus, the seed of the woman, he will bruise the head of the serpent, the tempter. And while he does that, the the head of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Jesus, first mentioned in the Bible, we see him there. But the curse to the serpent, you will crawl on the ground, no arms or legs. He's been humbled. Many believe that this means that the, the snake or the serpent originally had arms and legs and was able to crawl. I don't know, we could thumb wrestle over that but he's going to be eating or licking the dust all the days of his life. How do snakes smell? They do that little uh, the slither thing with their tongue and it gets in the dust and the dirt and they kind of know what's going on from that. But then he says there will be hostility between you and the woman and their respective offspring. And this isn't about women hating snakes, by the way, because there are some that don't. And those women creep me out. Um, but that being said... There will be hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the man. Now, that's interesting because, not to get graphic, but the man is the one that carries the potent seed in child-rearing, right? So the seed of the woman doesn't make any sense from a scientific or reproductive sense. But we know from reading the gospel that the God of peace will be brought forth through the virgin, and she would conceive by the Holy Spirit and bring forth Jesus Christ, the son of the virgin. And on his shoulders, the government will be, Isaiah chapter 9. And, but Romans chapter 16, verse 20 says it very clearly, that the God of peace will crush Satan underneath his feet. So it's not just any descendant of the woman, but it's the God descendant of the woman. And who is the offspring? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who are his descendants, the disciples of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation chapter 12, we actually see this woman spoken about. And we might even thumb wrestle over this too. But in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 13, it says, When the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she's nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So this persecuted child. Now, if you read the Christmas story, what you find is that as soon as Jesus is born, uh, Mary and Joseph are told to flee to the wilderness to avoid being killed by Herod, being a firstborn into the house, He killed every firstborn in Bethlehem in that time because of the prophecy about this Messiah. But then if you zoom forward, you see the church being persecuted by the serpent, by Satan, and everyone that has not bowed the knee to Jesus and is in power has persecuted the Jewish people throughout history. And yet the woman that I believe this is talking about is the church, the bride of Christ, and yet we could even thumb wrestle whether it's the, the, the woman being Israel or if it was the woman, the, the bride of Christ, the church itself, who will consummate the marriage we read in, in uh, Revelation in the last, gosh, six months. But all that to say that the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, is going to bring forth this bride. She will be persecuted. But through that persecution, we see the battle between Satan and the bride of Christ, the, the church christians and yet what paul writes in ephesians is that if you really want to fight the battle of the lord you need to put on your snake stomping gear the the battle that he's asking us to wage is not a battle against flesh and blood but it's a battle against principalities and the powers of the darkness of this world and in ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 he says finally my brethren Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Imagine the word of God unleashed and Adam and Eve being able to stand against this cunning serpent, this wily serpent. But to us is given the same instruction to be able to put on the full armor of God that we may be able to withstand against and endure temptation against the wiles of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places therefore take up the whole armor of god that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having all done all to stand stand having girded your waist, and then he talks about the armor. We won't go there this morning. So verse 16, the consequences of the woman. He says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So in here we have... Not only the serpent's consequences, but when you see the the consequences for the woman and the man. And then he says, uh, Adam said, then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the herb of the field, In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So, here's the bad news. Because of this broken command, you say, well, what does it matter? Well, to those of you that have given birth or been pregnant, it means (laughs) immense pain that was not there before the fall. Painful pregnancy and childbirth. I can't, I can't speak to that. I only know from talking to my wife that it's painful. And so that's part of the fall. Number two, for women, a strong desire to rule over your husband, but he is to be the leader in your marriage. A strong desire to... So, so as a young man, I read this passage, and it says, your desire will be for your husband. And as a guy that wasn't married yet, I was like, awesome, she's going to want me. no that's not the idea. She's going to want to rule over me. And so that's a a direct consequence of the fall. And yet what it says in 1 Timothy in chapter 2, and this is a hard uh, passage to speak on, it says within the context of the church, chapter 2 verse 12, Paul writes to them, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So the question becomes, does that mean women can't teach in the church because of the fall? And I would say yes and no. I would say yes in the sake that they're not supposed to be over men, but I would say at the same time, in the context of the family, and as far as teaching the younger as children, they are some of the best teachers for our children. And I would also say that the reason that he's telling the women not to speak in that church was because they wouldn't be quiet during the service, and they would ask questions. Now, another take that I heard, and maybe this is something just to meditate on, is that in the church, uh, women should not be counseled by the pastor by themselves. And so what Paul is teaching is that the wife ought to ask her husband about spiritual things she has questions about. And if he can't answer, he needs to go talk to the pastor or a leader. And it forces, by the way, your children do the same thing for both of you. But they, when they ask questions and you don't know how to answer them, it should cause you to want to go to somebody that does have the answer. And in so doing, it forces you to grow in your faith. There's no condemnation for things you don't understand unless you're unwilling to go learn it from somebody else. And so, in the body of Christ, we're all to be learning together. But in the context of marriage, you know this wives, you have a tendency to try to run things. And because you're so good at it many times as administrators, men, our stumbling block is that we are lazy. And we'd rather just let you run it because it's easier. But as men, when we don't lead, there are consequences. And I believe one of the reasons that the fall happened is because Adam, being the one that heard the command at the beginning, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't teach that to his wife. And because of that, she partook of the tree. She was deceived because she was ill-equipped, because her husband didn't teach her the ways of God. That's all for argument if you want. I don't care, we can thumb wrestle about it. But the idea is that the order is that the men would lead. And when we don't, there will be consequences in our families. There will be consequences in the church. There will be consequences in our community. And the nation that we live in looks like that because of you men, because of us. No one else, not the politicians, not the governor, and not the laws, not them taking God out of schools. It all rests on our shoulders. For us who know Jesus and know the truth, we need to get off our butts and start leading. And when we do, things will be restored to proper order. You might say, my wife won't follow me. Then become followable. Start leading. Whether she follows or not, though none go with me, still I will follow Jesus. Wives, maybe your husband's not somebody you you feel like you should submit to. You won't have one unless it's Jesus. Start submitting to him in the Lord, nothing else, in the Lord, and he'll become more followable. Pray and duck and ask God to whack him because God will do a better job than you will. And then the righteous fruit will come. All that to say, all consequences. And so men, maybe you hate going to work. Maybe you get tired of the grind. So did Adam. Part of the fall was that he would toil from the ground for his food, he would go to work, and then when he toiled in the ground, he would have to fight thistles and thorns. That's the fall. Maybe for you it's not a garden. Maybe for you it's not farming. Some of you it is, but for some of you it's going to work and having to deal with the thorns and the thistles of your coworkers or the thorns and the thistles of equipment breaking down. All that to say it's all part of the curse, the fall because of sin. And so the source of life, verse 20, spent more time on that than I planned. Verse 20, Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And I would say that the mother of all living doesn't just have to do with because that's how birth happens. We all owe our life to our moms carrying us, nurturing us, and then bringing us forth But at the same time, because of Jesus coming from a woman conceived by the Holy Spirit, she's the mother of all living, looking forward to that birth, the birth. And I have there for you Adam, the first man, and from that, Adam's sinful family. And yet, if we're born again of the Spirit, not just water, but also the Spirit, God's second man, Jesus Christ, bringing forth a new family, not born from the flesh, but born of the Spirit. And so, uh, let's go on to the next slide. Verse 21. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man He placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is where we find ourselves today, outside of God's garden. But notice where it starts. Adam and his wife. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made a covering, tunics of animal skin. Now, in order to get skin off of an animal, what has to happen? The animal has to die. Can't live without the skin, right? So this is the first time where an innocent creature is killed for the covering of sin. They didn't need to use fig leaves. He provided a sacrifice, and this is where animal sacrifice begins. He provides a covering for sin. Why? Because they needed cover. They were naked and ashamed. Number two... God guards the way to everlasting life. He says, guard the way to the, the tree of life. By the way, in the garden, they were free to eat from this tree. And when they ate from that tree, they would live forever. But since they ate from the tree, where they became to, began to discern the difference between evil and, and righteousness, it, they were fallen because of the curse. To live forever in that state would be perpetual insanity. And so he guards the way so that they would not live forever, but instead die. And then he banished man to toil on the earth. And from this point forth, we're going to start reading in Genesis, this descendants, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so. And you're going to go, why are we reading this? Why are we studying this? Why are we going through this? Because God's going to provide the Messiah. And it starts, and it's going to be a direct descendant of Adam. Adam all the way to Noah, from the flood, Noah, all the way to Abraham, God's people, from Abraham, all the way to King David, and from King David, all the way to the descendant and the Savior, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And so it's important that through this seed, the seed of the woman, through Eve, that this would perpetuate and we would draw a direct lineage. And if you notice, if you read the Matthew account of the gospel, you'll see that the, the, that the descendants stop after Jesus. Not because more people weren't born, but because the whole Bible is all leading up to where the Messiah would come. So next week, we'll look at man beginning to uh, multiply on the earth. But as we close, I'm going to go to Romans chapter 5. Because as I was reading Romans this week, it made me think about we're getting ready to baptize. We got two that I know of that we're baptizing this morning. Uh, Lucy, my daughter, and Peyton Inman, and I'm excited about that, but without what Jesus has done, without the fall leading to man being forgiven through Jesus, without the second Adam, Romans chapter 5, verse 18, says, therefore, as through one man's sin, offense, excuse me, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act of the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so because of one man's sin, death was brought to all. You are born a sinner because we are descendants of Adam and Eve. But through one man's righteous act of obedience to the will of the Father, we all are offered the opportunity to become alive again. And so we celebrate that this morning. So as we get ready to take communion, uh, how we take it here is I'm going to lead you through a song. And as I lead through the song, I want you to think about it. I want you to pray, spend time with Jesus. Communion is just a fellowship meal together with him. So I offer this to you. If you're a believer in Jesus and you've repented of your sin, you are able to come to the table. Uh, No need to be uh, uh, bashful. Um, But then as we sing the song, and then I'll lead you through it together after the song is over, and then we'll close with one more song. And so, Father, um, thank you for the opportunity to eat this fellowship meal with you. No doubt we won't be full by it, but in it, we remember your sacrifice on our behalf, and we celebrate it. You said every time you take the wine, drink the cup, Every time you eat this bread, you'll remember me. Do this in remembrance of me until I return. And so, Lord, we are looking forward to your literal return. We're looking forward to you setting things right. And so, Father, we just ask this morning, would you open up our hearts to worship you in thankfulness for your sacrifice? In Jesus' name, amen.